Welcome to Open Out, a podcast series about opening outwards in a time of sheltering in. It's about the nitty-gritty of living interculturally, trying to provide faith leaders and everyday folk with thoughts that can help us all create strong mutual relationships with people who have a very different cultural background than us. I am your host, Bill Miller. This series grew out of a research project funded by the United Church. Prior to this research, I was pastor of Knox United in Winnipeg, a community that emerged as one of the most culturally diverse churches in North America. And so Open Out was born out of the union of research and the lived experiences of folk who have walked that path. If you've been listening to this series, you'll know that we started with simple curiosity about what intercultural looks like and why faith communities might want to become more open to diversity. And then a series of four episodes called Considering, looking at what groups considering intentionally opening out might need in order to succeed in this process. This episode, called What's Height Got to Do With It?, is the first in our Committed series. This series tries to provide practical tools and knowledge for individuals and faith communities who now feel committed to intentionally opening themselves to welcome all. What's height got to do with that? Well, perhaps more than you might think. Today's episode is the first of two on implicit or unconscious bias, the hidden leanings and stereotypes that have such an impact on how we see others and how we can open ourselves to others. Some 50 years ago, when I was about 16 or 17 years old, passenger trains still ran across the prairies. They, they sort of ran. Actually, they, they broke down quite often. And then we'd all just wait, sitting on the tracks for a few hours while they fixed the engine or whatever the problem was. It was just outside Spy Hill, Saskatchewan, I remember. One very cold January day, just, just as dawn was breaking. I'd gone to the dining car and was looking out the window at the prairie snowdrifts thinking, oh, it is so beautiful. And the winter light gets very thin and milky on the Canadian prairies. And the snowdrifts were all these astonishing subtle shades of purple and pink. I I could hardly breathe. It was, I thought, perhaps the most beautiful thing I had seen in all of my 16 or 17 years of living. And then I became aware of someone standing beside me, looking out on exactly the same landscape. And then he looked at me and said in a thick British accent, Just like friggin' hell out there, isn't it? I looked at him puzzled, and then realized that two people can look out on exactly the same landscape and interpret it completely different. It's all about perception. It's all about the mind, not the landscape. This episode is all about that process of perception, how the mind interprets what it sees. As we seek to open ourselves and and our faith communities to this diverse Canada, the same thing comes to play. It's all about perception, about the hidden pathways that our brains are taking to help us interpret what our eyes and ears are telling us. I am a male who at one time managed to reach the robust and fully respectable height of 5'8". Maybe that's why I've always been a bit suspicious about height. Turns out I had good reason. Consider these facts. Less than 15% of American males are over 6 foot. 
Yet 60% of male CEOs are over six feet. Less than 4% are over six foot two. Yet over 36% of male CEOs are over six foot two. What's going on? The research shows that height is strongly related to income for males, 2% of income per inch. And these same findings have been replicated in Canada. Finally, I came across this brutal fact. Anthropologists have found no culture in the world where there is a preference for short men. I find this to be utterly unacceptable, personally. What's going on? It would clearly be absurd to choose a CEO because of height, just as it would be absurd to give employees lower performance evaluations if they're overweight, or for doctors to provide fewer medical procedures to indigenous patients than to white patients. And just as absurd for teachers to call on boys more often than girls when they raise their hands in class. Yet all these things happen. All are real. They are examples of what's called unconscious or implicit bias. Not realizing that having biases is part of the human condition, we gave it a moral value. We assumed that discriminatory thought and behavior was conscious and chosen. Good people, those who know better, do not act with bias. And those who don't know better, or are bad people, they're the ones who are biased. But that's not how it works. Bias works on the unconscious level, not the conscious. We can be blissfully unaware that it is busy working away in the background. Think about hurricanes for a second. If you're old, like me, you might remember that until the 1970s, hurricanes were given only female names. Since 1970, the names have alternated between male and female names. Annette, and then Bob, and then Carol, and then Daryl, and so forth. When researchers removed catastrophic-scale hurricanes from the picture, it turns out that the death rates in normal hurricanes are significantly higher when the hurricane has a female name. Why? You might be suspecting some lingering sexism in the World Meteorological Association, giving female names to the worst storms. But no, that's not it. The names are chosen years before and simply alternate. They also found that the death rates increased proportionally to the perceived femininity of the name. It's based on an unconscious association of femininity with something more gentle, less violent. So people hearing that Hurricane Tiffany or Priscilla is coming do not prepare the same way. It's an unconscious bias. No one is rationally or consciously thinking to themselves that a girl storm will not be as bad as a boy storm. It's unconscious. Researchers have found barrelfuls of biases busily working away inside us. Well, barrelfuls is not exactly a scientifically verified measure, but lots of them anyway. And they're there no matter what our language, race, or culture. Why? Because our brains are trying to be efficient. You see, every day humans go out into the world and have to make many, many decisions. Decisions about what is safe or wise or appropriate. Bias serves as an automatic decision-making tool. It consciously alerts us to danger before our rational minds can slowly figure it out. Once alerted to danger, our flight-fight-freeze mechanism sets in. This isn't a bad thing, it's a good thing, a survival thing. 
I don't know how they do this, but scientists estimate that we are exposed to something like 11 million pieces of information at any one time. And our brains, our conscious minds, can process only about 40. 40. So to help us survive, our brains have pre-established a bunch of filters and triggers, and they're all set up to help us navigate through all this. Our brains immediately and effectively sort the 11 million pieces of information and reduce them to a manageable 40. That is what we see. That is what we perceive. And we believe what we perceive to be real. It is, sort of. But it is highly filtered and managed. Quickly being able to distinguish a foe from a friend was essential to our survival, truly a matter of life and death. If the goal is to survive, a false positive is much better than a false negative. If you sense something coming at your head, you duck, even if you find out later it was just a weird shadow. Better safe than sorry. If we think that might be a saber-toothed tiger attacking us, only to find out that it's actually our friend Bert wearing his new saber-toothed tiger coat, we can either mutter at Bert or laugh out loud. But if we think it's Bert in his new coat we find out it's actually a saber-toothed tiger, well, we're, well, we're probably a saber-toothed tiger's entree. Biases are neither inherently good or bad. They just are. However, if we find a bias to be unhelpful, they are actually quite malleable. Unwanted biases can be mitigated, changed. Once we learn about height bias, we're far less likely to let it impact how we decide on our next CEO. Biases, then, are one of the shortcuts that our brains use to keep us safe and strong. Our brains have all these little neighborhoods, you know, and they all do different things. The prefrontal neocortex is the part of the brain that allows us to consciously think. What academics call metacognition, that means to to know that we're thinking. It's our reason center. But it's a small little bit of the brain. And really, it has very limited computing or processing power compared to the other more robust areas of the brain. So in order to not overwork that little area, we need to conserve precious resources like glucose and the other internal chemicals that feed the brain. We rely on automatic brain functions and reactions. It would be both inefficient and dangerous for a brain to stop and think about each stimulus, each each thing that happens and then decide how to respond. If a child darts in front of your car when you're driving, you need to act automatically and not have a reasoned internal conversation about what steps might be best to follow in this circumstance. Biases are shortcuts. They allow us, in a sense, to think without thinking. Let's look briefly at just a few of the biases that impact us when we're trying to open ourselves to people who are somehow different than us. All of these have to do with how we judge others and judge ourselves. Can you think of a time when you met someone new? You you hadn't gotten to know them yet, yet somehow you felt comfortable with them, felt oddly warm towards them. You might even talk to them more openly and intimately than would be normal with someone who really is still a stranger to you. And then you realize that either they looked or acted or sounded like someone you know, someone perhaps from long ago, someone you had warm feelings toward. 
or it might be that they reminded you of a younger version of yourself. This experience is one expression of affinity bias. Affinity bias, also called the similar-to-me effect, is a bias toward somebody that we perceive to be more like ourselves or our friends, our group. With them, we rather quickly feel comfortable, let down our guard. We have this tendency, then, to ascribe positive attributes to this new person, kind of innocence by association. This can be true even with seemingly silly stuff. For the last 25 years, I've worn Blundstone boots. When I see someone else wearing them, I feel a certain kind of affinity toward that person. There's also a reciprocity to this affinity stuff. The more you feel affinity, the more likely you are to smile, to open your body posture towards them, to encourage them and try to put them at ease with you. But with affinity bias, of course, the reverse is also true. If the people we perceive to be like us increase our comfort, then people we perceive to be different increase our discomfort. I am a bit embarrassed to tell this story, but I do recall a very clear incident of this in my life. It happened the first time I went to a Japanese Buddhist funeral. I went there by myself, and once I was there, I I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know anyone there. Now, here's the embarrassing part. I started looking around like mad for someone who was like me, Occidental, just to make me feel more comfortable. The more different than ourselves or our group we perceive this new person to be, the more guarded and careful we are. So then, how would affinity bias help our brain? If we don't have to be wary and carefully judge the other as a potential predator, we can kind of go on autopilot. It's easier. This plays out not only in how people look, but in how they sound as well, with something called accent bias. Research has shown that it takes less than 30 seconds for our brain to create a mental profile of a speaker based entirely on their accent. In about a half a minute, we've made decisions about their ethnicity, class, and background. But we have also made a decision about how reliable they are. See, people tend to believe others more when they have similar accents. Numerous studies have shown that the same information is judged less credible, less trustworthy, when spoken by someone with a different accent than us. This, of course, is a critical issue for foreign-born clergy trying to find a place in the church. So again, how would this help our brains? Well, the less we have to scrutinize information, the less brain resources we need to use up the easier anything is to process, the happier our brain. The more difficult, the more wary we become. This bias can be generalized, for example, an accent that's difficult to understand, or it can be personalized if we have some personal history with an individual or a group that had that kind of accent. In its more generalized form, accent bias is likely related to what's called fluency effect, where our perception of the reliability or truthfulness is proportional to our ease of processing the information. The harder it is for us to process the speaker's message, the more likely we are to be skeptical about what he or she is actually saying. This fluency effect happens across all cultures. It's not simply a Euro-Canadian thing. So you can see how this would impact a faith community, for example, where there are many, many different accents. 
I, I can vividly remember a conversation with a person who had what seemed to me to be a very thick accent, who was complaining about another person being hard to understand because of their different accent. Hmm. Trust can take some extra nurturing when there is a hodgepodge of accents. Academics break this fluency effect into more specific little bits. Processing fluency is the ease by which information is processed. Perceptual fluency refers to the ease by which information is perceived. And retrieval fluency is about the ease by which it can be retrieved from memory. Both affinity bias and accent bias are are probably related to something called in-group bias. Remember, this is unconscious, not something that we are awake to. In-group bias is the belief or assumption that your group is somehow best, and other groups are somehow less, somehow inferior. Take, for example, the way Euro-Canadians like to have meetings. Quick, clear, decisive, no long stories. We don't have to know how everyone is feeling about whatever it is. Just decide. We assume this is the best way to have meetings and that newcomers or others with a more collectivist background who can spend hours just checking in with one another, well, they just don't know the right way to have meetings. At Knox, we had so many different groups, Filipino, Nepali, West African. And all of them, each of them had in-group bias and all had to learn to let it go. This instinct to see our group as best can result in what's called othering, where we label the other person as somehow other. We stop seeing them as a person just like us. In-group bias has been increasing with the advent of social media. If you belong to some Facebook groups, just take a moment and think about them. Likely most, or perhaps even all, are populated by people who think rather like you. Well, in-group bias is, of course, increasing in Canada. In America, really, it has reached epic proportions. Different cohorts, different groups of rather like-minded people even have their own separate news channels to watch on TV. Liberals watch CNN or or maybe even MSNBC. Conservatives, including the so-called religious right, watch Fox News. And this is where the silos come in, where in-group bias becomes so strong that we actually distrust anything that comes from the other group. We can also see it in the small things, almost silly things. I am a Winnipegger, and de facto that makes me a Blue Bomber fan. That's our football team. And our arch rivals are the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. They wear green. So do their fans. And when I see someone wearing a Green Riders jersey, I feel slightly annoyed. The last one that I want to talk about as part of this little cluster is called the outgroup homogeneity bias. Homogeneity means all the same. This is the tendency to think of members of other groups or cultures as somehow kind of the same. Filipinos love to take photographs. Japanese are very punctual. Oh man, those West Africans, they really grieve deeply when they lose someone. We see members of that group as mostly the same, but we make allowances for more individual differences or diversity within our own group. This, of course, is stereotyping. The brain wants to stereotype. That's how it operates. Biases, stereotypes, well, they're like rapid transit for our brains. They allow us to react quickly without resorting to reason. And they do this by recognizing patterns. And when they can recognize the pattern that allows for instant assessment or diagnosis. 
If someone asks you to add 2 plus 2, you can do it quickly. But say they ask you to divide 391 by 83, your response time will be much slower. Why? Because you are drawing on your computing power to do this, not your memory. Stereotypes and biases are based in memory and they operate the same way. They make it quicker for our brains to react. Say you're, you're in a meeting with six or eight new people from a different culture. And everyone is talking at the same time, it seems. They're all interrupting each other and emotions are heightened. It's much easier to think they are rude or they don't know how to listen to each other than to sit down with people from the group and ask them to explain about their native decision-making process and how it is that they can concentrate and hear each other with multiple voices talking over one another. Simply saying they're rude is much quicker. Patterning and stereotyping allow the brain to generalize in order to protect us. Now, some of these grow out of our own personal history and experience. If I was attacked by a rabid raccoon when I was young, then each time I see something like a raccoon running toward me, I'm going to have a fear reaction, even if that simply turns out to be our neighbor's cat. My brain will have a pattern that sees a raccoon-like thing as a danger. It's a stereotype about raccoons. This process of immediately judging means we don't waste precious mental resources on non-essentials. And so first impressions matter. You might have seen the YouTube video where Joshua Bell, one of the world's top violinists, played a violin that was worth millions in a subway station for free. Hundreds, well, thousands of people passed by, but only seven stopped to watch. You see, they weren't expecting Joshua Bell to be there. It didn't fit the stereotype. When I was doing my BA, I figured out that if I wrote a top-notch first essay for a prof, then I could slack off a bit later on and probably still get an A, because the prof had already decided I was an A student. All this stuff has to do with brain chemistry. Remember we were talking about the amygdala, that, that place where the fear is created and the flight, fight, freeze instinct lives? Well, its next-door neighbor is the hippocampus. And the hippocampus stores long-term memories and connects learning to emotions. Say I am assaulted by a man wearing a red plaid shirt. Somewhere in my hippocampus, red plaid becomes associated with danger, with pain and fear. And so much later, when I'm talking with someone who happens to be wearing a red plaid shirt, I might start to feel anxious, uncomfortable, like I need to escape and have no idea why. The hippocampus and the amygdala are communicating without even bothering to involve that prefrontal cortex part of me, that thinking part. Researchers have discovered many different biases unobtrusively working away in the back of our minds trying to keep us safe. Some are helpful. Some just kind of quirky. But others, including those we touched on today, can and do impede our capacity to have the meaningful mutual relationships we desire. Healthy interpersonal relationships, psychologists remind us, are not based so much on feelings of closeness, but on the ability to clearly and accurately give and receive information across the borderline between us, to understand rightly. While biases may have developed to help us, some can be quite harmful in our current social context. It's true they're quick, 
but they can also be notoriously, even disastrously wrong. The fraught relations between police and racialized minorities in almost all countries is a clear example of that. The good news is that although they are everywhere in all of us, they are also, curiously, often quite changeable. At the simplest level, many, well, the most irrational ones, are a bit like the dew. You know, just before dawn, the dew impacts everything, everything's all wet, and then suddenly, effortlessly, it evaporates, just with the warmth of sunlight. Some of these, like height bias, for example, can evaporate just by bringing them to light. Another one for me that was like that was planning fallacy. Planning fallacy is the tendency to significantly underestimate the amount of time it will take us to complete a particular task. Often this is by half. But it only affects our own self-estimates of how much time it will take us. We can be pretty good when we estimate how long it will take someone else to do a task. But for ourselves, we underestimate, and badly. The moment I read about that, it was like a stab. Oh, I thought of all of the times I had told a family member or some group at the church how long it would take me to do something, and it always took me twice as long as I expected. Once alerted to it, though, I suddenly could be far more accurate in my planning. Of course, not all biases are so easy to dismount. Because our brains intentionally seek simple paths, they are not always eager to abandon them. Next week, in part two of our exploration into this odd and often shrouded world of implicit bias, we will not only look in greater detail at other groups of biases, we'll also look at ways we can help our brains unseat biases we know to be unhelpful, mistaken, or destructive. This week, height. Next week, depth. This episode is being recorded in my basement at the end of April, just as a few of the restrictions are beginning to be lifted. Even so, our churches remain shuttered, our synagogues locked, our mosques and temples silent. There's an odd little story about the prophet Elijah. In a time of drought, he promised rain. Day after day, he asked his student to go out and look to the sea for rain clouds. And day after day, the student returns having seen nothing. Then on the seventh day, the servant returns and says, I saw a cloud no larger than a human fist. Ah, it was all they needed to know. Perhaps these small openings will be the beginning of a larger opening, a time when, no longer afraid of the strangers among us, we will intentionally open our hearts and communities to welcome them. Words from Rilke. All houses will prove welcoming and a sense of unlimited offering prevailing in all relationships, and in you and me. May it be so. Please go to our website, openout.ca, to link to past or future episodes. There's also an OpenOut Facebook page where we can interact directly. I am grateful to the United Church Foundation for funding this research, and to the United Church's Intercultural Ministries and their publishing house for their support. I'm also grateful to Bruce Harding for the theme music. You can find a wealth of material on unconscious or implicit bias on the web. I have found the material at Cook Ross Incorporated to be particularly helpful, and I have drawn on some of their material for this podcast. <laughs>